Chapter 36 of Will Warburton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Will Warburton by George Gissing. Chapter 36. His hands upon the counter, Warburton stared at the door by which first Rosamond, then Bertha Cross, had disappeared. His nerves were a-tremble, his eyes were hot. Of a sudden he felt himself shaken with irresistible mirth. From the diaphragm it mounted to his throat, and only by a great effort did he save himself from exploding in laughter. The orgasm possessed him for several minutes. It was followed by a sense of light-heartedness, which set him walking about, rubbing his hands together and humming tunes. At last the burden had fallen from him. The foolish secret was blown abroad. Once more he could look the world in the face, bidding it to think of him what it would. They were talking now, the two girls, discussing their strange discovery. When he saw Rosamond this evening, of course he would see her, as she had promised. Her surprise would already have lost its poignancy. He had but to tell the story of his disaster, of his struggles, and then to announce the coming moment of rescue. No chance could have been happier than this, which betrayed him to these two at the same time, for Bertha Cross's good sense would be the best possible corrective of any shock her more sensitive companion might have received. Bertha Cross's good sense. That was how he thought of her, without touch of emotion, whilst on Rosamond his imagination dwelt with exultant fervour. He saw himself as he would appear in her eyes when she knew all. Noble, heroic. What he had done was a fine thing, beyond the reach of ordinary self-regarding mortals, and who more capable than Rosamond of appreciating such courage? After all, fate was kind. In the byways of London it had wrought for him a structure of romance, and amid mean pursuits it exalted him to an ideal of love. And, as thus he dreamt, and smiled, and gloried, very much like an aproned Malvolio, the hours went quickly by. He found himself near Albert Bridge, pacing this way and that, expecting at every moment the appearance of the slim figure clad in grey. The sun set. The blind of Rosamond's sitting-room showed that there was lamplight within, and at ten o'clock Warburton still hung about the square, hoping, against his reason, that she might come forth. He went home and wrote to her. In a score of ways he explained to himself her holding aloof. It was vexation at his not having confided in her. It was a desire to reflect before seeing him again. It was, and so on, all through the night, which brought him never a wink of sleep. Next morning he did not go to the shop, it would have been impossible to stand at the counter for ten minutes. He sent a note to Alchin, saying that he was detained by private affairs, then set off for a day-long walk in the country to kill time until the coming of Rosamond's reply. On his return in the afternoon, he found it awaiting him. An hour later, he was in Oakley Crescent. He stood looking at the house for a moment, then approached and knocked at the door. He asked if Miss Elvin was at home. "'She's gone away,' was the reply of the landlady, who spoke distantly, 
her face a respectable blank. "'Left for good?' "'Yes, sir,' answered the woman, her eyes falling. "'You don't know where she has gone to?' "'It's somewhere abroad, sir. In France, I think. She has a sister there.' This was at five o'clock or so. Of what happened during the next four hours, Will had never a very distinct recollection. Beyond doubt he called at the shop and spoke with Alchin. Beyond doubt also he went to his lodgings and packed a travelling bag. Which of his movements were performed in cabs, which on foot, he could scarce have decided had he reflected on the matter during the night that followed. That night was passed in the train, on a steamboat, then again on the railway, and before sunrise he was in Paris. At the railway refreshment room he had breakfast, eating with some appetite. Then he drove to the terminus of another line. The streets of Paris, dim vistas under a rosy dawn, had no reality for his eyes. The figures flitting here and there, the voices speaking a foreign tongue, made part of phantasm in which he himself moved no less fantastically. He was in Paris, but how could that be? He would wake up and find himself at his lodgings, and get up to go to business in Fulham Road, but the dream bore him on. Now he had taken another ticket. His bag was being registered for Saint-Jean-de-Luz. A long journey lay before him. He yawned violently, half remembering that he had passed two nights without sleep. Then he found himself seated in a corner of the railway carriage, an unknown landscape slipping away before his eyes. Now, for the first time, did he seem to be really aware of what he was doing. Rosamond had taken flight to the Pyrenees, and he was in hot pursuit. He grew exhilarated in the thought of his virile energy. If the glimpse of him aproned and behind a counter had been too great a shock for Rosamond's romantic nature, this vigorous action would more than redeem his manhood in her sight. Yes, I am a grocer. I have lived for a couple of years by selling tea and sugar, not to speak of treacle. But nonetheless, I am the man you drew on to love you. Grocer though I be, I come to claim you. Thus would he speak, and how could the reply be doubtful? In such a situation, all depends on the man's strength and passionate resolve. Rosamond should be his. He swore it in his heart. She should take him as he was, grocer's shop and all. Not until her troth was pledged would he make known to her the prospect of better things. The emotions of the primitive lover had told upon him. She thought to escape him by flight across Europe. But what if the flight were meant as a test of his worthiness? He seized upon the idea and rejoiced in it. Rosamond might well have conceived this method of justifying both him and herself. If he loves me as I would be loved, let him dare to follow. Tomorrow morning he would stand before her, grocerdom a thousand miles away. They would walk together as when they were among the Alps. Why, even then, had his heart prompted, had honour permitted, he could have won her. He believed now, what at the time he had refused to admit, that Frank's moment of jealous anger was not without its justification. Again they would meet among the mountains, and the shop in Fulham Road would be seen as at the wrong end of a telescope, its due proportions. They would return together to England and at once be married. As for the grocery business, 
reason lost itself amid ardours of the natural man. He paid little heed to the country through which he was passing. He flung himself onto the dark platform and tottered drunkenly in search of the exit. Billet? Why, yes, he had a billet somewhere. Hotel? Yes, yes, the hotel, no matter which. It took some minutes before his brain could grasp the idea that his luggage check was wanted. He had forgotten that he had any luggage at all. Ultimately, he was thrust into some sort of vehicle, which set him down at the hotel door. Food? Good heavens, no, but something to drink and a bed to tumble into. Quick! He stood in a bedroom, holding in his hand a glass of he knew not what beverage. Before him was a waiter, to whom, very much to his own surprise, he discoursed fluently in French, or something meant for that tongue, that it was more than sixty hours since he had slept, that he had started from London at a moment's notice, that the channel had been very rough for the time of the year, that he had never been in this part of France before, and hoped to see a good deal of the Pyrenees, perhaps to have a run into Spain, that first of all he wanted to find the abode of an English lady named Mrs. Cap... Cop... He couldn't think of the name, but he had written it down in his pocket-book. The door closed, the waiter was gone, but Warburton still talked French. Oui, oui, en effet, très fatigué, horriblement fatigué. Trois nuits sans sommeil. Trois nuits... His clothes fell in a heap on the floor. His body fell in another direction. He was dead asleep. End of chapter 36